Psycho-Cybernetics, Chapter 5, with Study Guide, How to Utilize the Power of Rational Thinking. Many of my patients are plainly disappointed when I prescribe something as simple as using their God-given power of reason as a method of changing negative beliefs and behavior. To some, it seems incredibly naive and unscientific, yet it does have one advantage. It works. And as we shall see later, it is based on sound scientific findings. There is a widely accepted fallacy that rationale, logical, conscious thinking has no power over unconscious processes or mechanisms, and that to change negative beliefs, feelings, or behavior, it is necessary to dig down and dredge up material from the unconsciousness. Your automatic mechanism, or what the Freudians call the unconscious, is absolutely impersonal. It operates as a machine and has no will of its own. It always tries to react appropriately to your current beliefs and interpretations concerning environment. It always seeks to give you appropriate feelings and to also accomplish the goals that you consciously determine. It works only on the date that you feed it in the form of ideas, beliefs, interpretations, and opinions. It is conscious thinking that is the control knob of your unconscious machine. It was by conscious thought, though perhaps irrational and unrealistic, that the unconscious machine developed its negative and inappropriate reaction patterns, and it is by conscious rational thought that the automatic reaction patterns can be changed. Dr. John A. Schindler, author of How to Live 365 Days a Year and who introduced the concept of emotionally induced illness, won nationwide fame for his outstanding success in helping unhappy, neurotic people regain the joy of living and return to productive, happy lives. His percentage of cures far exceeded that of psychoanalysis. One of the keys to his method of treatment was that he called conscious thought control. Regardless of the omissions and commissions of the past, he said, a person has to start in the present to acquire some maturity so that the future may be brighter than the past. The present and the future depend on learning new habits and new ways of looking at old problems. There simply isn't any future in digging continually into the past. The underlying emotional problem has the same common denominator in every patient. This common denominator is the patient that has forgotten how or probably never learned how to control his present thinking to produce enjoyment. Let sleeping dogs lie. The fact that they are buried in the unconscious memories of past failures, unpleasant and painful experiences, does not mean that these must be dug out, exposed, or examined in order to affect personality changes. As we have pointed out earlier, all skill learning is accomplished by trial and error. By making a trial, missing the mark, consciously remembering the degree of the error and making correction on the next trial until finally a hit or successful attempt is accomplished. The successful reaction pattern is then remembered or recalled and imitated on future trials. This is true for a man learning to pitch horseshoes, throw darts, sing, drive a car, play golf, get along socially with other human beings, or any other skill. It is also true of a mechanical rat learning its way through a maze. Thus, all servo mechanisms, by their very nature, contain memories of past errors, failures, painful, and negative experiences. These negative experiences do not inhibit but contribute to the learning process. As long as they are used properly as negative feedback data and are seen as deviations from the positive goal that is desired. However, as soon as the error has been recognized as such and corrections, of course, made, it is equally important that the error be consciously forgotten and the successful attempt remembered and dwelt on. 
These memories of past failures do not harm as long as our conscious thought and attention are focused on the positive goal to be accomplished. Therefore, it is best to let these sleeping dogs lie. Our errors, mistakes, failures, and sometimes even our humiliations were necessary steps in the learning process. However, they were meant to be means to an end and not an end in themselves. When they have served their purpose, they should be forgotten. If we consciously dwell on the error or consciously feel guilty about the error and keep berating ourselves because of it, then unwittingly the error of our failures itself becomes the goal that is consciously held in imagination and memory. The unhappiest mortals is that man who insists on reliving the past over and over in imagination continually criticizes himself for past mistakes, continually condemning himself for past sins. I shall never forget one of my women patients who tortured herself with her unhappy past so much so that she destroyed any chance for happiness in the present. She had lived for years in bitterness and resentment as a direct result of a serious harlot that caused her to shun people and to develop over the years a personality that was stunted, crabby, and completely tuned against the world and everything in it. She had no friends because she had imagined that no one would be friendly with the person who looked so awful. She deliberately avoided people or, what's worse, consistently alienated people with her sour, defensive attitude. Surgery cured her physical problem. She tried to make the adjustment and begin living with people in harmony and friendliness, but found that her past experiences kept getting in the way. She felt that, despite her new appearance, she could not make friends and be happy because no one would forgive her for what she had been before the operation. She wound up making the same mistakes she had made before and was as happy as ever. She did not really begin to live until she learned to stop condemning herself for what she had been in the past and to stop reliving her imagination, all the unhappy events that had brought her to my office for surgery. Continually criticizing yourself for past mistakes and errors does not help matters, but on the other hand, tends to perpetrate the very behavior you would change. Memories of past failures can adversely affect present performance if we dwell on them and foolishly conclude I failed yesterday therefore it follows that I will fail again today however this does not prove that unconsciousness reaction patterns have any power in themselves to repeat and perpetrate themselves or that all buried memories of failure must be eradicated before behavior can be changed if we are victimized it is by our conscious thinking mind and not by the unconscious For it is with the thinking part of our personality that we draw conclusions and select the goal images that we shall concentrate upon. The minute that we change our minds and stop giving power to the past, the past with its mistakes loses its power over us. Ignore past failures and forge ahead. Here again, hypnosis furnishes convincing proof. When a shy, timid wallflower is told in hypnosis and believes or thinks that he is bold, self-confident orator, His reaction patterns are changed instantly. He currently acts as he currently believes. His attention is given over completely to the positive desired goal, and no thought or consideration whatsoever is given to past failures. Doritha Brande tells in her charming book, Wake Up and Live, how this one idea enabled her to become more productive and successful as a writer and to draw on talents and abilities she never knew she had. She had been both curious and amazed after witnessing a demonstration in hypnosis. Then she happened to read one sentence written by psychologist F.M.H. Myers, which she says changed her whole life. 
The sentence by Myers explained that the talents and abilities displayed by hypnotic subjects were due to a purgation of memory of past failures while in the hypnotic state. If this were possible under hypnosis, Ms. Brande asked herself, if ordinary people carried around within themselves talents, abilities, powers that were held in and not used merely because of memories of past failures, why couldn't a person in the wakeful state use the same powers by ignoring past failures and acting as if it were impossible to fail? She was determined to try it. She would act on the assumption that the powers and abilities there were and that she could use them if only she would go ahead and act as if instead of in a tentative heart half-hearted way within a year her production as a writer had increased many times and so had her sales a rather surprising result was that she discovered a talent for public speaking became much in demand as a lecturer and enjoyed it whereas previously she had not only shown no talent for lecturing but disliked it intensely Bertrand Russell's method in his book the conquest of happiness Bertrand Russell says I was not born happy as a child, my favorite hymn was Weary of Earth and Laden with My Sin. In adolescence, I hated life and was continually on the verge of suicide, from which, however, I was restrained by the desire to know more mathematics. Now, on the contrary, I enjoy life. I might also say that with every year that passes, I enjoy more. Very largely, it is due to a diminishing preoccupation with myself. Like others who had appeared in education, I had the habit of meditating on my sins, follies, and shortcomings. I seemed to myself, no doubt justly, a miserable specimen. Gradually, I learned to be indifferent to myself and my deficiencies. I came to center my attention increasingly upon external objects, the state of the world, various branches of knowledge, individuals for whom I felt affection. In the same book, Russell describes his method for changing automatic reaction patterns based on false beliefs. It is quite possible to overcome infantile suggestions of the unconscious and even to change the contents of the unconscious by employing the right kind of technique. Whenever you begin to feel remorse for an act which your reason tells you is not wicked, examine the causes of your feeling of remorse and convince yourself in detail of their absurdity. Let your conscious beliefs be so vivid and emphatic that they make an impression upon your unconscious strong enough to cope with the impressions made by your nurse or your mother when you were an infant. Do not be content with an alteration between moments of rationality and moments of irrationality. Look into the irrationality closely with a determination not to respect it and not to let it dominate you. Whenever it thrusts foolish thoughts or feelings into your consciousness, pull them up by the roots, examine them, and reject them. Do not allow yourself to remain a vassal creature swayed half by reason and half by infernal folly. But if the rebellion is to be successful in bringing individual happiness and is enabling a man to live consistently by one standard, not to fallacate between two, it is necessary that he should think and feel deeply about what his reason tells him. Most men, when they have thrown off superficially the superstitions of their childhood, think that there is no more to be done. They do not realize that these superstitions are still lurking underground. When a rational conviction has been arrived at, it is necessary to dwell upon it, to follow out its consequences, to search out in oneself whatever beliefs inconsistent with the new conviction might otherwise survive. 
What I suggest is that a man should make up in his mind with emphasis as to what he rationally believes and should never allow contrary irrational beliefs to pass unchallenged or obtain a hold over him, however brief. This is a question of reasoning with himself in those moments in which he is tempted to become infantile, but the reasoning, if it is sufficiently empathetic, may be very brief. Ideas are changed, not by will, but by other ideas. It can be seen that Bertrand Russell's technique of searching out ideas that are inconsistent with some deeply felt conviction is essentially the same as the method tested clinically with such amazing success by Prescott Leckie. Leckie's method consisted of getting the subject to see that some negative concept of his was inconsistent with some other deeply held belief. Leckie believed that it was inherent of the very nature of mind itself that all ideas, concepts, and make up the total content of personality must seem to be consistent with each other. If the inconsistency of a given idea is consciously recognized, it must be rejected. One of my patients was a salesman who was scared to death when calling on big shots. His fear and nervousness were overcome in just one counseling session during which I asked him, would you physically get down on all fours and crawl into the man's office, protesting yourself before a superior personage? I should say not, he bristled. Then why do you mentally cringe and crawl? Another question. Would you go into a man's office with your hand out like a beggar and beg for a dime for a cup of coffee? Certainly not. Can't you see that you are doing essentially the same thing when you go in overly concerned with whether or not he will approve of you? Can't you see that you have your hand out literally begging for his approval and acceptance of you as a person? Leckie found that there were two powerful levers for changing beliefs and concepts. There are standard convictions which are strongly held by nearly everyone. These are, number one, the feeling of belief that one is capable of doing his share, holding up his end of the log, exerting a certain amount of independence. And number two, the belief that there is something inside you which should not be allowed to suffer indignities. Examine and reevaluate your beliefs. One of the reasons that the power of rational thinking goes unrecognized is that it is so seldom used. Trace down the belief about yourself or the belief about the world or the people which is behind your negative behavior. Does something always happen to cause you to miss out just when success seems within your grasp? Perhaps you secretly feel unworthy of success or that you do not deserve it. Are you ill at ease around other people? Perhaps you believe you are inferior to them or that other people are so hostile and unfriendly. Do you become anxious and fearful for no good reason in a situation that is relatively safe? Perhaps you believe that the world you live in is a hostile, unfriendly, dangerous place or that you deserve punishment. Remember that both behavior and feelings spring from belief. To root out the belief that is responsible for your feeling and behavior, ask yourself, why? Is there some task that you would like to do, some channel in which you would like to express yourself but hang back feeling that I can't? Ask yourself, why? Why do I believe that I can't? Then ask yourself, is this belief based on an actual fact or an assumption or a false conclusion? Then ask yourself these questions. Number one, is there any rational reason for such a belief? Number two, could it be that I am mistaken in this belief? Number three, would I come to the same conclusion about some other person in a similar situation? Lastly, number four, why should I continue to act and feel as if it were true if there is no good reason to believe it?
Don't just pass these questions by casually. Wrestle with them. Think hard on them. Get emotional about them. Can you see that you have cheated yourself and sold yourself short? Not because of a fact, but only because of some stupid belief. If so, try to arouse some indignation or even anger. Indignation and anger can sometimes act as liberators for false ideas. Alfred Alder got mad at himself and at his teacher and was enabled to throw off a negative definition of himself. This experience is not uncommon. An old farmer said he quit tobacco for good one day when he discovered he had left his tobacco home and started to walk two miles for it. On the way, he saw that he was being used in a humiliating way by a habit. He got mad, turned around, and went back to the field and never smoked again. Clarence Darrow, the famous attorney, said his success started the day that he got mad when he attempted to secure a mortgage to buy a house. Just as the transaction was about to be completed, the lender's wife spoke up and said, don't be a fool. He would never make enough money to pay it off. Darrow himself had had serious doubts about the same thing, but something happened when he heard her remark. He became indignant, both at the woman and at himself, and he determined he would be a success. A businessman friend of mine had a very similar experience. A failure at 40, he continually worried about how things would come out, about his own inadequacies, and whether or not he would be able to complete each business venture. Fearful and anxious, he was attempting to purchase some machinery on credit. When the seller's wife objected, she did not believe he would ever be able to pay for the machinery. At first, his hopes were dashed, but then he became indignant. Who was he to be pushed around like that? Who was he to shulk through the world, continually fearful of failure? The experience awakened something within him, some new self. And at once, he saw that the woman's remark, as well as his own opinion of himself, was an affront to the same thing. He had no money, no credit, and no way to accomplish what he wanted. But he found a way. And within three years, he was more successful than he ever dreamed of. Not in one business, but in three. The power of deep desire. Rational thought to be effective in changing belief and behavior must be accompanied with deep feeling and desire. Picture to yourself what you would like to be and have and assume for the moment that such things might be possible. Arouse a deep desire for these things. Become enthusiastic about them, dwell on them, and keep going over them in your mind. Your present negative beliefs were formed by thoughts plus feelings. Generate enough emotion or deep feeling and your new thoughts and ideas will cancel them out. If you will analyze this, you will see that you are using a process you have often used before. Worry. The only difference is you change your goals from negative to positive. When you worry, you first of all picture some undesirable future outcome or goal very vividly in your imagination. You use no effort or willpower, but you keep dwelling on the end result. You keep thinking about it, dwelling on it, picturing it to yourself as a possibility. You play with the idea that it might happen. This constant repetition and thinking in terms of possibilities makes the end result appear more and more real to you. After time, appropriate emotions are automatically generated. Fear, anxiety, discouragement. All these things are appropriate to the undesirable end result you are worrying about. Now change the goal picture. And you can easily generate good emotions. Constantly picturing to yourself and dwelling on a desirable end result will also make the possibility seem more real. And again, appropriate emotions of enthusiasm, cheerfulness, encouragement, and happiness will automatically be generated. Informing good emotional habits and in breaking bad ones, said Dr. Knight Dunlap, 
We have to deal primarily with the thought and thought habits. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. What rational thought can and cannot do. Remember that your automatic mechanism can as easily function as a failure mechanism as it can as a success mechanism, depending on the data you give it to process and the goals you set for it. It is basically a goal driving mechanism. The goals it works on are up to you. Many of us unconsciously and unwittingly, by holding negative attitudes and habitually picturing failure to ourselves in our imagination, set up goals of failure. Also, remember that your automatic mechanism does not reason about or question the data you feed it. It merely processes it and reacts appropriately to it. It is very important that the automatic mechanism be giving true facts concerning the environment. This is the job of conscious rational thought, to know the truth, to form correct evaluations, estimations, and opinions. In this connection, most of us are prone to underestimate ourselves and overestimate the nature of the difficulty facing us. Always think of what you have to do as easy as it will become so, said Emil Coy, the psychologist and pharmacist who introduced a popular method of psychotherapy and self-improvement based on optimistic autosuggestion. In the same vein, psychologist Daniel W. Jocelyn wrote in his book, Why Be Tired?, I have made extensive experiments to discover the common causes of that conscious effort which freezes the thinking mind. Practically, always it seems to be due to the tendency to exaggerate the difficulty and importance of your mental labors, to take them too seriously in fear they will find you incapable. People who are eloquent in casual conversation become imbeciles when they mount the speaker's platform. You simply must learn that if you can interest the neighbor, you can interest all the neighbors or the world and not be frozen by magnitudes. A person who fears public speaking usually has no fear of talking openly with trusted friends. The fact that you can speak openly with friends means you have the skill of public speaking. Now, all you need to do is bring the same person who speaks easily with friends into the room where you will then speak openly before a large crowd of perceived friends. Picture yourself speaking openly with friends, then amplify the same imagery in your mind to encompass a larger group of friends, and public speaking will become easy for you. You never know until you try. It is the job of the rational, conscious thought to examine and analyze incoming messages to accept those that are true and reject those that are untrue. Many people are bowed over by the chance remark of a friend, such as, You do not look so well this morning. If they are rejected or snubbed by someone, they blindly swallow the self-called fact that this means they are an inferior person. Most of us are subjected to negative suggestions every day. If our conscious mind is working on the job, we do not have to accept them blindly. It ain't necessarily so is a good motto. It is the job of the conscious rational mind to form logical and correct conclusions. I failed once in the past, so I will probably fail in the future. Is neither logical nor rational. To conclude, I can't in advance, without trying, and in the absence of any evidence to support the inevitable feeling of failure, it is not rational. We should be more like the man who asked if he could pay, if he could play the piano. I don't know, he said. What do you mean you don't know? He was asked. I have never tried, he replied. Decide what you want to do, not what you don't want. It is the job of the conscious rational thought to decide what you want. The select goals you wish to achieve and concentrate on these rather than on what you don't want. To spend time and effort concentrating on what you do not want is not rational. When President Eisenhower was General Eisenhower in World War II, he was asked what he had been 
the effect on the Allied cause if the invasion troops had been thrown back into the sea from the beaches of Italy. It would have been very bad, he said, but I never allowed my mind to think in that way. Keep your eye on the ball. It is the job of your conscious mind to pay strict attention to the task at hand, to what you are doing and what is going on around you, so that these incoming sensory messages can keep your automatic mechanism currently advised of the environment and allow it to respond spontaneously. In baseball parlance, you must keep your eye on the ball. It is not your job of the conscious rational mind, however, to create or to do the job at hand. We get into trouble when we either neglect to use conscious thinking in the way that it is meant to be used or when we attempt to use it in a way that it was never meant to be used. We cannot squeeze creative thought out of the creative mechanism by making conscious effort. We cannot do the job to be done by making strained conscious effort. And because we try and cannot, we become concerned, anxious, frustrated. The automatic mechanism is unconscious. We cannot see the wheels turning. We cannot know what is taking place beneath the surface. And because it works spontaneously and reacting to present and current needs, we can have no imitation or certified guarantee in advance that it will come up with the answer. We are forced into a position of trust. And only by trusting and acting do we receive signs and wonders. In short, conscious rational thought selects the goals, gathers information, concludes, evaluates, estimates, and starts the wheels in motion. It is not, however, responsible for results. We must learn to do our work, act on the best assumptions available, and leave the results to take care of themselves. Write down five key points to remember from this chapter. Your case history is to list here an experience from your past that is explained by the principles given in this chapter.